Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Just in all of our ability to continue powering through and pumping out exponent podcasts, no matter what stands in our way. I flew to the other side of the Pacific just to be closer to you this week. That's right. I mean, it's funny. I don't think people realize how large Asia is. Like people will be flying over to like another Asian country, but like, hey, you know, is that far away from you? I'm like, yeah, that's what the distance from New York to LA <laughs> or something like that. I'm a little closer than that, but not a lot. Yeah, not much. Probably more like Chicago to LA. Uh, you are in Singapore this week. Uh, trust that's okay to disclose that. Yes, yes, Singapore. Yes, it is. In fact, I just looked up quickly. It is almost exactly the distance from Chicago to Los Angeles, from Taipei to Singapore. So you are on this side of the world. You are in a hotel room on a travel mic. We did get some feedback about some audio issues last week. I'm actually not sure what happened at all, but we will try to pay attention to those in post and make sure nothing went on. I apologize for that, but let's do this. Let's power through. Fingers crossed that it all works out. Let's see. Yeah, absolutely. So given that I wrote a weekly article on Thursday of last week, relatively sort of late breaking, talk about Spotify, and we kind of had that weird thing where we recorded Spotify first and then wrote about it and then came back and then released it afterwards. I think the one thing we got wrong is it wasn't clear at that time that we recorded that the sort of current Gimlet shows would stay available. It's kind of future shows that would probably be exclusive, but I don't think that really changed the broader points that we were going going for. Yeah, no, I remember reading one of the Spotify executives saying something to that effect, that the majority of their content would be non-exclusive. That wasn't how they were thinking about it. So I kind of had a germ of that in my head while we were talking about it, but I think you're right. We could have been more explicit in stating it. But I actually think that distinction is interesting. I saw this in a lot of feedback. I thought we were pretty clear on the podcast. I thought I was pretty clear in the article as well. But I think that having exclusive content for Spotify is absolutely a part of this play. But I think that undersells the degree of this play. My view of this is they kind of want to make a move for the podcast industry generally. Like so mid-roll, which is sort of the largest player as far as podcast ad sales, I think that's almost more of a target in some respects than Apple is, although I think they're both targets. Yeah, I mean, I think Apple's almost collateral damage. In this respect, Apple's not doing a huge job of turning this into a monetizable business. It's just, it's almost like saying the open web was the target of Facebook. It's just the place where this thing happens to live and integrating it and bringing it all in-house up and down the stack. Like that's part of Spotify's play. I don't think they're doing it to go after Apple in this sense. They're just doing it because this is the play you need to make in order to win podcasts. Well, yeah, but also Apple Music. I mean, certainly Spotify wants to differentiate its offering relative to Apple Music. Like I said, I think it's one of those things where it's not an either or. I think it's kind of like all of the above. Anyhow, we're, we don't need to sort of go over that. But I kind of wanted to make that point again, because this has happened so often when you look at companies and their sort of strategic moves and what they're doing. And it's not always a sort of black or white question. Sometimes it's all of the above or a little bit of everything. And sometimes it's a bad thing. You know, it's a bad thing if you sort of can't make clear decisions. But other times, you know, it can be a good thing. And I think given the sort of state of the podcasting space, and again, this is setting aside any of our sort of personal feelings about whether this is good or bad for exponent or for podcasting generally, just sort of from putting our business analyst hats on, I think approaching it 
in a way with a lot of optionality, which I think Spotify is doing, is sort of the smart play here. I think it's a full on move. It's clearly a huge priority. You know, these two acquisitions show that and the fact there is budget for several more in the next year. But how it will actually play out and the way it will actually pay off, I think they can sense there's an opportunity and they do have an advantage. That advantage is the 200 million plus listeners that they have on their platform. And as we talk about endlessly, we'll talk about more right now. You have end users that you can bring to a market. You can start to exert control over that market oversupply. And given that, approaching that with a huge degree of optionality makes a ton of sense. I think that point around optionality is a good one. There's another way of framing it, which is the dirty little secret of business with big strategic moves is when you're inside a business trying to make these decisions, you can have a high degree of precision around how you think this is all going to work out. That doesn't mean it's going to be accurate. And in fact, people's ability to predict the future here is not always as good as you'd like to believe given the sums of money that are involved. What you do have is like, okay, we're lining up as many of these things in our favor and let's go see what we can figure out. And it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think these are two things that get lost in general, and I think they do kind of go hand in hand. So one is that there is genuine value in creating optionality, like in having you know things going forward. Now, again, we've talked about this in the context, I think, of personal development. The idea of, I think it was one of your professors, the idea of like being super focused versus having your eyes up or something along those lines. Yeah, I think it was the strategy development process, an emergent versus deliberate strategy. And emergent is the best approach when you're not sure or how to do things or how it's all going to work out. And you have the aperture much more widely open, but then suddenly some aspect of a strategy works and then you need to double down and become much more focused and you shift into a deliberate strategy making process. Right. I think that makes sense. And in this case, Spotify, to my estimation, is taking a very sort of emergent approach. They're narrowed in the sense that they're focused on podcasting, but within podcasting, it's a very sort of emergent viewpoint. And I trust the idea is once something starts to work and starts to make sense, then that's the time to sort of buckle down and make super decisions. And when you make decisions, you never make decisions with complete information. Decision making is always sort of a probability exercise. And I think the idea of probability generally is sometimes hard to grok. You know, you you have to figure out what's the expected value of an outcome, which is the the upside if the outcome happens times the possibility that outcome is going to occur. And the costs that go into that are not just the upside. It's also opportunity costs from not doing something else. Like there's all sorts of things that go into decision making. And the outcome that decision making is almost never a black and white. This is exactly what we should do. It's super clear. Like if it were that easy, then (laughs) there would be no profit in it. Right. Right. The sort of Executive decision making is a matter of one, being able to deal with probabilities, two, understanding when to create or close down optionality, and three, having the insight to know what data do I need to know in order to make a decision. That's almost the biggest thing. It's like, it's not just that, okay, I have this decision to make. That's not enough. How can I best maximize the likelihood I get the decision right, which often leads to actually a multi-step process of identifying, here's all the unknowns I don't know. Here's a process to make those unknowns, maybe not completely known, but somewhat known thus improving the accuracy of sort of my expected value calculation. 
Right. And I mean, you have the ability of an organization to execute on all these ideas, like that needs to be factored in. And then you have competitive responses that needs to be factored in. And then there's how consumers respond and potentially suppliers as well. That needs to be factored in. And these are all human beings and it's not always easy to predict how everyone's going to behave. And that's why this remains as much art as it is science. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we have jobs, right? <laughs> so, you know, the point of it is sometimes when I write an update on a Thursday in particular, I almost want to usually follow up on Monday. And then there wasn't a whole lot going on in tech. And I wasn't even sure if I was going to do a weekly article this week. And I also had in the back of my head, you were traveling. Maybe, you know, this is a good week to just catch up on things on those lines. But then this story from the Wall Street Journal came out about Apple News and some proposals they had on publishers. And I kind of had two motivations here. One, I've been wanting to write about Apple News for quite a while. As you might imagine, I have a notebook with various ideas and links and things along those lines. And I almost wrote about it last year. I'd already been sort of thinking about it. And then also the sort of news was Apple's in the middle of negotiating with publishers for this event that is going to happen in March, which is, you know, kind of striking how early this sort of news leaked with that regard, which is perhaps interesting. But I don't know. I kind of feel like this is something that I have a strong point of view on is fueled not just by my personal experience, but about an industry and a process that I've thought a lot about. And I kind of wanted to express that point of view and be like, hey, this is I think there's a pretty clear path here. And I want that to be known. Thus, we got this week's article, The Cost of Apple News. Nice. It seems to be running very neatly with the conversations we've had on the podcast the past few weeks. You think about we've been having this conversation in the context of movies and TV shows and aggregators. And then last week was podcasts and, and music and how that all fits together. And now here's another one, perhaps the first one that really started to feel the effects, which was the news industry. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It, I've quite enjoyed, I think, a lot of our conversations recently, in part getting really into the supply side of aggregation theory, because I think, you know, we spent a lot of time to date talking about the consumer side, and that's the most important side, right? The idea here is that demand is a world that shifts to controlling demand matters more than controlling supply. But the implications of that for supply, I think, are very, very interesting, and this absolutely fits right into it. And and yeah, to your point about newspapers, I mean, I've always maintained this. The reason to write about publishing is not simply because it's the world that I exist in, but because I do think it's sort of the first one to feel these effects in because text is so trivial translated on the internet. And, you know, I think that's an important point in here. What something that I, that I think is important to think about when it comes to these aggregation effects, and this applies to Apple news, just as much as applies to Facebook or anything else is one thing that makes it really challenging for suppliers in this environment is that any sort of like cost-benefit analysis almost always tilts towards going with the aggregator. And the reason is because digital content has zero marginal costs, right? It's not like they have to print extra papers to distribute it via Apple News or distribute it via Facebook or whatever your aggregator of choice. It's literally just bits on a disk that on a marginal basis cost nothing. And so if you sort of take this sort of mindset, you back up and you, you think about from a publisher perspective and you think about, oh, these people that are going into Apple News that are looking at articles, they are not choosing to go go to our website. They're not choosing to come somewhere else. Like There's no explicit decision-making process where I'm not going to go to publication X. I'm going to instead go to Apple News. They've already decided to go to Apple News. Like It's under the water, as it were. And given that's the case, we can 
put our content on our own website or in our own app or publish it on Facebook or put it in Apple News and it's all additive. Yes, maybe the additive is quite small, but it's not like it's costing us anything because there's zero marginal cost to put it everywhere. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about doing marginal analysis, marginal cost, marginal benefit analysis, and there is definitely a place for it. At the same time, it can mislead you, particularly if you get the time frame wrong over which you do the marginal cost analysis. And there is a history of really interesting analysis ranging back to a guy who used to work at Boeing doing something like this, looking at how McDonnell Douglas did this and Boeing did this and ended up outsourcing a whole bunch of stuff because each decision along the value chain ended up appearing to make sense. And what ends up happening is an organization gets hollowed out piece by piece by piece. And you step back and it's like, well, what's left of the organization? It's almost just a brand on the front. And the suppliers or the people that have taken the outsourced work end up with all the power. There's a similar kind of concern I have here, and it's added to by a collective action problem because all these newspapers like, okay, it makes sense. I might as well do it because it's marginally beneficial. But if they want to really build a subscriber base, for example, and they are just feeding themselves into a commoditized play, in the short run, yes, an extra bit of digital revenue, even if it's small, is helpful. A lot of these publications are bleeding, but you step back and look at it. Is this the right strategic play to do this? And it's like kind of questionable. Yeah, so just to back up and give some sort of broader context for Apple News. Apple News was introduced in, I believe it was 2015. And the idea was there's this app on your phone and and then an iPad where there's news content. And interestingly enough, Apple put out the call for publishers to join it. They also just took stuff. Stratechery is in Apple News and I did not approve it. And I responded to the email saying, no, I don't want it in there. And it's still in there. But I mean, I guess either is a Stratechery RSS feed and they took it. So anyhow, I don't think trajectory has made or broken Apple News, but Apple News has a lot of content. It can either take, again, just like a plain RSS feed, and then the articles, they're just kind of presented rather plainly, or there is an Apple News format where you can actually deliver your stuff and add in pictures and videos and format it nicely and and add in advertisements. And you're limited in the advertisements you can do. They have to be ones you sold directly. There's no programmatic ads allowed. And also they are ads that are just display ads with no sort of data connected to them. It's like a magazine style. You're just putting an ad in there. There's no data exchange and like, oh, this this user is going to serve this particular ad. None of that is allowed, which is, you know, certainly on brand as far as Apple goes and not very good for monetization as far as publishers go. And what did Apple sort of bring to the table here? Well, it's very straightforward. When you have one of the most important smartphone platforms on earth, a close to 50% share in the US, which is where Apple News launched, it is now in a couple more markets, but it's still limited. You have that default placement. That default placement is incredibly powerful. And I think to the extent that Apple News is successful, and there was a New York Times article that I cited that Apple cooperated with that suggested 90 million users. I've heard since on the grapevine, that's probably closer to about 60 million users and lower as far as daily activity users go, but still it's a meaningful number without question. I'm reminded of our discussion a couple of years ago about Netflix and the value that Apple could provide in that case. Like the fact of the matter is that defaults really work. I mean, Apple music has certainly benefited from that. And Apple news, I think is another clear sort of piece of evidence that Apple's ability to sort of drive usage simply by virtue of controlling the home screen on a new iPhone is very, very powerful. 
Yeah, I mean, there's another piece of context that's really important in how valuable or how relatively important this is from a publisher perspective, which is Facebook did one of its famous algorithm tweaks in January last year to decrease the prominence of news articles. So the traffic from Facebook started to decline at the same time Apple News has continued to pick up stream and drive more and more traffic and views to magazines and websites articles. Yeah, and from what I've heard, that effect has been most pronounced when it comes to news publications in particular. That's where Apple News does seem to be succeeding the most. Certainly, there's lots of interesting things about that. Like, for example, they do have human curation for the top stories for the sort of today post. They have algorithmic recommendations. If you like want your own topics, you choose your, like, I want to follow technology or NBA basketball or whatever it might be. But there is a human component there. And from what I've heard for news publications in general, it's been quite powerful. It doesn't work as well. Well, as I understand it, with sort of more lifestyle sort of publications. But the fact remains is that it has basically gone from nothing to something. And the number one driver is Apple's ability to put it on the home screen of every iPhone user. And I think that's very interesting when you put it in the context of like aggregation theory, because what's sort of the key thing that gets an aggregate off the ground? It's controlling the demand side. And here, the demand side are the readers. So Apple by leveraging the fact that it controls the iPhone, is able to bring a bunch of readers to this new-to-the-world application. That compels publishers to, maybe they started out with just an RSS feed, but also maybe to actually start using Apple News format and putting resources towards it and making the content more compelling and and starting to sort of work with and lobby that editorial team to get their pieces promoted. And that, that makes the Apple News product a more compelling product for more users. So more users start using it, and now it's even that much more attractive for publishers, and it's that virtuous cycle we've talked about again and again, and it's a perfect use case, a perfect example of how that dynamic works. So I think that brings us back to the point earlier around marginal cost, marginal benefit. And as Apple News picks up steam and starts to get some of these virtuous cycle benefits, it seems on a short run basis to become more and more attractive from the perspective of the publishers. But I can't help but feel that they are thinking about it from too short term a perspective and they're falling into the trap of almost modularizing or commoditizing, depending on the word that you want to use from our previous podcast. They're commoditizing themselves in such a way where it's breaking down their brand and atomizing their offering into just individual articles, which isn't in their long-term interest. It's a great point. Like everything that I described about, okay, we'll, we won't just give you the RSS feed. We'll actually go in and do work and make it better. That's like the SEO industry. Remember, that's like creating supply for Google, like different supply. It's the exact same sort of dynamic. Every bit of work that has gone into optimizing sort of a publisher's feed for Apple News has been doing work on the behalf of Apple to make Apple News that much more of an aggregator. And in the long run, to your point, if you step back from a marginal analysis, in which, oh yeah, if you think about it, how much is it going to cost our engineers' time to do sort of this new format versus the payout we can get from Apple News and the potential there? If you back up and look at it strategically, if you're a publisher, do you want more aggregators? I mean, we've seen that game, and do you really want to be investing resources, which makes sense on a marginal basis, but is very problematic on a strategic basis? 
there's one other aspect to this too, which is the collective action problem. It's one thing to just view this as your own marginal cost and your own marginal benefit, but there's also an aspect to which many of these articles are actually substitutable. And if all your competitors are going in, your decision to withhold is not actually going to do that much. And you're like, okay, well, they're going to get the news anyway. At least I might as well get some cut out of it. It's such a critical point. And so many people that sort of comment, I think, on what publishers should or shouldn't have done and what they should or shouldn't have done relative to Google or relative to Facebook, just glide over that problem. Like the collective action issue is a critical piece. I should probably talk about it more, to be honest, in my writing of aggregation theory, because why is it for Spotify, for example, why do they not harvest most of the profits in their value chain? Because there is no collective action problem on the supply side because there's only three or four sort of suppliers. And they're, of course, not colluding, but they sure seem to always manage to get the exact same deals or (laughs) however however that happens to work. But that's a perfect counter example. And the reason it's different is because there's only a few of them. In the case of publishing, you're quite literally dealing with not just all the newspapers in the world, not just all the magazines in the world. You're dealing with all the blogs in the world and all the other sources of content there might be. And it makes the collective action issue sort of inevitable because someone is going to take that opportunity if if you don't take it. Yeah. And compounded by the fact that when you atomize it down to articles, many of the articles are substitutable versus if you really want to see a specific movie or you really want to listen to a specific artist, that is much less substitutable. Absolutely. It's such a great point. It's also sort of a key component. And I think to step back at sort of a very high level, you know, one of the things I've talked about in the context of disruption, for example, is the initial idea of disruption, this idea of sort of a technology change fueling you coming in with a new business model and sort of moving up market and the incumbent, you know, we criticize the incumbents for, you know, going up market and sort of running away. But the reality is in sort of the purest forms of disruption, like they have no choice, like they're literally incapable capable of reacting to that sort of new entrant, which is driven by some sort of you know technological breakthrough. And I think it's a similar case when it comes to aggregation. When it came to Google, for example, the reality is that there was really no choice but to respond to these incentives because of this combination of you had to go where the users were and the collective action problem. The only way to sort of undo that was to sort of band together, particularly when it comes to text. And this is, again, why it's so useful to talk about publishing, because all these problems problems are like magnified massively. In part, you just mentioned the videos. Like, yeah, it's it's a lot harder to make compelling video than it is to make compelling text. And that just makes all these problems times 100. And you can see it come through so clearly. Like, It's not that they're being dumb. It's that they're stuck in a value chain that is just so fundamentally tilted against them that they kind of have no choice what to do. There is a way that you can resist this, though. And you can actually see that organizations have been successful in doing it. And there are actually examples of organizations that have been successful of resisting it, even in the news industry, which is of all of like compared to audio or video, the most difficult to pull it off, right? Yeah, which is going direct to consumer. Like the antidote from a supplier perspective for an aggregator is to connect directly to the consumer. If you just sort of think about it, like imagine it in your like visually, like if you are here on the left side and the consumer is there on the right side, what an aggregator is attempting to do is to sit in the middle. And like that's makes them different. Remember, we talked about this in the context of platforms. What's the difference between a platform and an aggregator? A platform sits on the bottom and helps the supplier and the user connect, right? It facilitates 
States is like a triangle, whereas an aggregator is like a straight line and they're plopped right in the middle. And that's where they sort of derive their power from, which it follows the way to sort of get out of that is you have to sort of go off to the side, go around the aggregator and establish that direct connection with the user. And so as you referenced in the case of publications, that direct connection, the most obvious sort of model is a subscription model. And you see this with the sort of the big three. You mentioned them before. They're, I think they're the ones that Apple really wants for this service, which the big three in the U.S. being the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. And what they've done and why their futures look far brighter than they did previously and far brighter than a lot of other publications is they've built up this huge subscriber base who are going there directly. You know, it's not just an attention thing, but then also the business model with it is they're actually paying for it. And by the way, you know, I think this is another example, frankly, where this is applicable, I think, very broadly in all sorts of industries. You think about what's the big trend when it comes to e-commerce, for example, right? If you want to build an e-commerce company, you want to figure out how you can go direct to consumer, whether it be through subscription programs, whether it be through actually building physical stores, like the thing like the Warby Parker stores, whatever they might be. Like, what's the goal with all these? The goal is to avoid getting stuck on Amazon and being subject to their buyers and they're putting you up against commodity products, whether it be from Amazon or be from anyone else. No, you want to build a direct connection with the consumer because that gives you sort of so much more latitude to not just offer a better product. Like there's big positives for consumers here. You get better feedback from consumers. You know what they want. You have to understand their needs, and then you have to build up what you supply to meet those needs. And in the case of publications specifically, it's critical. Like if you're in a world where on Facebook, for example, how do you make money on Facebook? Well, you get the most clicks, and that means getting you know sort of the most outrageous things or, or big headlines or things that will spread virally. Sometimes the deep investigative report that is super critical and important, it doesn't spread virally. <laughs> but it is incredibly meaningful and important to some segment of people who are then willing to pay for it. And, you know, you can think about streaming services, for example. I've always been very interested in, you know, ESPN watch the ESPN plus streaming service. And for lots of reasons, it's not going to have the large major sports on it because there's still so much more money made on TV. And we've discussed how TV is a uniquely great fit for live sporting events in the past. But there's, there's so many sports in the world. World. There's like people in the U.S. want to watch cricket. They want to watch their soccer league from their home country. I mean, yeah, the Premier League is on NBC, but maybe you want to watch La Liga or you want to watch the Bundesliga or I get myself in trouble. I keep trying to say these names or you want to watch ping pong like or you want to watch pool. Pool is all over TV here. So it's nine ball like there's this huge sort of long tail. And what's alluring about that sort of content is you don't need a huge audience for it. You just need people who really, really want it. And that sort of idea that you get people who care deeply about things and are willing to pay for it, and you can sort of do that at scale, it's a very, very different sort of mindset and approach to building a product than just trying to get the mass market, trying to attract as many people onto an article as you can. Yeah, I mean, I think you talked around it, but to explicitly state it, it's not just that you get data and see what people like. You actually get to control your own destiny. If you don't have that relationship with the consumer, the aggregator has the relationship with the consumer and the aggregator sets the terms of engagement under which you get access to the consumer and how much you get paid. And you can see this when these 
platforms have changed the rules on suppliers arbitrarily because they can, and they will continue to do so. And unless you own that relationship with the consumer, like the pricing that you agree on, it can just arbitrarily change the extent to which your articles versus your competitors' articles get shown to the consumer can arbitrarily change. That relationship with the consumer is valuable, not just in improving your product, but in enabling you to control your own destiny. And if you don't have that relationship, then somebody else does, and you're living under the terms that they dictate to you. See, we, we end up being able to talk about BuzzFeed after all. <laughs> I was just thinking back to our conversation last week around why Exponent isn't on Spotify. Yeah, there you go. I mean, in the case of Apple News currently, there is benefit for, we'll talk about the big three, and and there's a separate discussion to be had about the relative sort of potential for these large national publishers versus like local, for example, and, and things on those lines. We're not going to talk about this today, but just to acknowledge that that discussion does exist. But in this particular case, it's interesting because the Journal, the Post, and the Times have taken actually somewhat different approaches to Apple News. So on one extreme is the Wall Street Journal where all of their articles are on Apple News, but like 95% of them, you have to be a subscriber to log in. And so there's two ways that you can access those articles on Apple News. One, you can log in using your pre-existing Wall Street Journal account. Or two, you can click the subscribe, which will basically put you through an in-app purchase flow, which means that Apple then gets to keep 30% for the first year and 50% for, for years going forward. And so that's the approach that they take. And this offering for Apple, it's interesting because we've talked a lot about sort of in-app purchase. I have a little bit less of a problem with it in some respects because I think Apple is doing sort of real work here to deliver users. And like it is a user acquisition channel and they're kind of charging for that. It's not perfect from a poster perspective, not just the cut, but also you don't get any data from Apple. The only way to get data is you get the customer to create an account after they've done the in-app purchase. And, you know, the sell upsell as well. You know, if you want to access this account on other devices, you need, you know, create a username and password you know, give us your email address. But it's a okay situation. And like I said, the Wall Street Journal has sort of leaned very heavily into that. The Washington Post is more in the middle in that they also put all their articles on there. Some are subscription and some are free. They have more articles that are free, basically, relatively speaking. The New York Times, on the other hand, only puts a subset of articles on Apple News and they're all free. So there's no sort of like subscription option within Apple News to subscribe to the New York Times. You can't even log in and get all the information. They've just given a limited set. And it's almost more like a brand building exercise. Like they want to be in there and want the New York Times to be on there, but they want to completely and fully control sort of the customer relationship. So if you want to subscribe, you have to go to the New York Times to subscribe. But by and large, like I said, it's not perfect. We can certainly, there's no need for us to sort of relitigate sort of the, the App Store and subscription and things like that. But there is a reasonable argument for these companies to be on Apple News as it is today because Apple News is facilitating sort of the establishment of that direct relationship. Again, it's not a perfect relationship, particularly given the lack of data, but there is sort of an outcome here that plays to their strategic interests. Yeah, I like the two extreme strategies the most. And it's interesting to see how the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times have taken completely different, almost opposite approaches. You can get the rationale for both. The Wall Street Journal is like, okay, we'll get there. We are going to diminish the experience of people that are not Wall Street Journal subscribers that are using Apple News because it is quite a frustrating experience to land on an article, get to read the first couple of sentences 
preferences and then like, oh, you need to be a subscriber to read anything more. And it's interesting that Apple's allowing that because it is diminishing the user experience. That being said, you can see the clear line between that and getting more subscribers, even though they lose some aspect of the customer relationship they're getting revenue and they might end up getting the customer relationship in the long run if someone decides they then want to get the Wall Street Journal app or read it on a web page and then outside of Apple News and like, oh, I have an account, let's just log in and create it. On the other hand, the New York Times is like, okay, we'll strategically release things here to let people know that we're here, but we really want that customer relationship. We don't want to give up any revenue. And so if people want more of this, they're going to have to get involved with us on our terms. I can see the merit to both approaches. So it's interesting because I actually prefer the Washington Post approach <laughs> of the oh, three. Wow. And the reason is that if you are wanting to build a direct-to-consumer business, the aggregators can be of value to you. They are the best sort of like lead generation. And usually I, you think about this in the case of Facebook and Twitter. I mean, it still kind of blows my mind. I've mentioned many times that I started Trajectory with sort of five-year plan, and I thought it'd just take that long to build an audience. The speed with which the Trajectory audience was built was kind of mind-blowing, and that's because of social media. The fact that articles could be shared and shared broadly and rapidly, it's pretty incredible. And it's a huge asset for building direct. It's funny, like the same exact same companies and the exact same dynamics that are so damaging to sort of traditional publishing models are incredible assets if you have your business model aligned in the right direction. And in this case, Apple News is not necessarily user generated sharing, but it is a lead generation mechanism. And the problem with the Wall Street Journal approach is none of the articles are going to ever be promoted. You're never going to make sort of that front page. You're never going to get that consumer unless they're searching explicitly for the Wall Street Journal, in which case they're already relatively far down your funnel. And whereas the Washington Post, they're more likely to be surfaced on the front page of the app to be, or whether via algorithm or be a human selection, they're going to get higher. And once you're there, the likelihood that you'll kind of swipe over or click next story and boom, then be confronted with the paywall. Well, to me, that's a good thing. And that could say what the New York Times, I think, is missing, where they never introduced that paywall. It's never clear that there's more to get. If you didn't know any better, you just think that that's all there is for the New York Times. And I read everything in the New York Times today. And actually, there's like 70 other stories that you didn't read, but you didn't know existed, whereas the Washington Post lets you know they exist. So I actually prefer the Post strategy, but I think your point's well made in that, you know, being super explicit about one side or the other is often beneficial as well. So I think, you know, it's not even an agree to disagree. So I can definitely see all sides of this. I mean, I think this is as good a time as any to introduce the offering that Apple's proposing, both from a consumer and a supplier perspective. And it's still all TBD and this is all still, you know, rumored, but it sounds like it's going to be something along the lines of a $10 a month subscription, which gives you unlimited access from a consumer perspective to everything that Apple has. And then 50% of that cut is rumored to be going to Apple and the other 50% of the cut will be set aside for a pool for suppliers and will be shared with suppliers based on user engagement with the articles, which is, I think is a broad overview of the offering, right? Yeah, I think that's right. It's very interesting because a couple of points. First is sort of a technical point. It's been 
talked about as this is the Netflix of news. And we've certainly talked about the difference between Netflix and Spotify. Netflix buys content and then they can sort of monetize it infinitely. And that's why they have a better business model than Spotify does. This is more of a Spotify of news in that Apple is going to pay out a percentage of the revenue they generate. And that percentage was kind of the point of the article is what that percentage is going to be. And it, make no mistake, this appears like it could be a very sort of profitable opportunity for Apple, but it's not a Netflix style business where you make a fixed cost and then you leverage that cost to as much revenue as you want. Like the amount of revenue that Apple drives is directly connected to sort of their cost of goods sold. Got it. Anyhow, uh, sorry, forgive my pedanticness. That's a point that I think is always worth repeating because I get the Netflix and Spotify questions so many times. So I'm, I'm happy to sort of make that point again. But from a consumer perspective, this sounds pretty awesome, right? You pay one amount per month and you get all of this content. You don't have to worry about subscribing to multiple publications, having to balance your usernames and passwords, keeping your credit cards up to date. Like you don't have to worry that I'm already subscribed to like five newspapers and this other thing or read one newspaper and this other article came out. I want to read it and I'm going to pay again. It's all sort of a one-off thing. You pay once and you get it all. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, this is the joy of the internet from a consumer perspective, right? In the same way that you could imagine way back in the day, well, the internet's here. Why are there all these different release dates? And why do I have to watch the TV when the TV sets the schedule? Why can't I just watch this whenever it is? Like it's starting to get towards, at least from the consumer perspective, the dream of the internet, which is the technology enables us to do this this way in a way where the experience is fantastic. Why isn't it like that? And this feels like a pretty solid step towards that. This is a great example of where sort of words can deceive and why it's really important to look at a value chain in totality as opposed to sort of one piece of it. Because on the surface, we're talking about subscriptions. Like this is a subscription offering. The New York Times is a subscription offering. They're all subscriptions, right? I'm paying money to support journalism. It's all great. The fact of the matter, though, is despite the fact this is called a subscription and it is a subscription that you are paying money every month, the implications of this and the value chain that results from an Apple News subscription subscription is fundamentally different than the direct consumer model we described earlier, where you are charging a subscription. In that model, in a direct to consumer model, there is sort of a one-to-one relationship between the consumer and the publisher. The consumer pays money to the publisher. The publisher publishes stories that the consumer reads. It's a direct sort of connection. In this case, it's exactly what I described about an aggregator. It is Apple sitting in the middle between that relationship, and there is not a direct connection. Rather, there is money being paid to Apple, Apple is then keeping that money and dispersing it amongst the various publishers. And the reality is, and this is the key thing about being super precise and understanding just the fact that it's the word subscription, the reality is the Apple subscription model is the exact same for all intents and purposes as far as its effect on the value chain as the Facebook model, even though Facebook runs on ads. Maybe we need a word other than business model because there are different business models. Obviously, advertising is a different business model than subscriptions. But like value chain model, maybe is a way to put it, because the way the value chain is structured as far as the Apple new subscription offer is the same structure as sort of Facebook. Just the way that money gets into the value chain is different. Is that making sense? 
It makes total sense. I mean, this has to do with whether those publications have, like we said earlier, control of their destiny. And Apple has control of their destiny. Facebook has control of their destiny because Apple and Facebook have the relationship as opposed to the independent publishers. And when the money flows through the intermediary and the intermediary has that degree of control, there are downstream effects on the value chain. Now, that being said, the comparison with Facebook is interesting because Apple's proposing to pay the publishers in a way it's not necessarily the clicks, it's time spent. And I'm actually a little bit more bullish on the prospect of this encouraging more quote-unquote traditional behavior because you can write a whole bunch of clickbaity headlines and get people to click and then they read the first paragraph and they're like, what is this junk? Why did I come over here? As opposed to, I mean, I think you mentioned earlier the long-form journalism that doesn't necessarily go viral. Well, that's true. It probably doesn't go viral. But if you reach some smaller percentage of users and they end up spending a substantial amount of time reading a five six, seven thousand word article. And that's the way in which that you are paying publications based on the amount of time. I actually like that metric in terms of driving the right behavior in terms of journalism overall. It's a good point. I think there's another sort of point in Apple's favor in that Facebook sort of shares the motivation for outrage and lots of engagement and sort of clicking all over the place because that does align with the ad model as well. Whereas in this case, Apple is motivated to make sure users are having a experience that they feel good about paying for. And so it's absolutely a fair point. I wish I would have acknowledged this better in the post that there is this point. There is a meaningful difference here. That said, it doesn't change, in my estimation, the dynamics on the publisher. And this is a very subtle point that I think is really important, though, to understand, is that in the Apple model, basically what's happening, you say you want like super deep investigative pieces or you want the Baghdad Bureau, you know, is, is always the classic sort of example, is it's offloading all of the risk onto publishers where they have to make all these upfront investments for these things and kind of pray and hope that it makes it up on the backside by getting featured on the front page of Apple News and getting a lot of time spent. And oh, by the way, they should do less editing and write longer articles so they can have more time spent. In my estimation, that's not the job of a publisher. The publishers that succeed, they're not succeeding because people are paying for individual articles. That's a losing game to be in. If you're trying to get people to pay for marginal content, it's a hard thing to be in. So what are people paying for? To my my mind, they are paying for sort of the ongoing production of that news and their gain is manifested through the zero marginal content that they read. But I subscribe to the New York Times, not just because I want to read this New York Times article right now, but because I want the New York Times to sort of continue producing these sort of articles that are important to me. I think I benefit from the check read. It's not just that people want to read one daily update. It's that they want the regularity and they want to know that those daily updates are going to come every day at the same time. And it's shifting where that money comes in and the motivation of that money much more to the front end on the production side of the content, which is a much better and healthier place to be for journalists. And I've talked about this in the context of local news. I think local news, for example, I think there's a real opportunity with the right cost structure. What are you selling? To me, you're not selling articles. That's the way newspapers work because they had to produce articles so they could have that paper every day so that the ads could be next to it. But you have to get out of the idea of selling an already produced good to selling something more ethereal, something like being informed. Like the idea that I I just want to know what's happening in my hometown. And sometimes, say I get an email, the best email I can get from my local news publication is an email that says, nothing
something happened today. And that's accomplishing the goal of me being informed without them writing a lot of words and driving a lot of engagement or doing a lot of positive time spent. I would go back to the music analogy, which is another sort of favorite. Well, what is being sold today? The reason why the music industry is prospering is not because they're selling digital music files, which are, again, a losing proposition. They're selling convenience. They're selling the ease of getting to these. And that's not a perfect analogy here, other than the fact that what Apple is trying to incentivize publishers with is fundamentally different than I think the sort of incentives that ought to drive a direct-to-consumer business. And so for all the differences from Facebook that you discussed, this fact remains. All the risk is offloaded and you're paying for zero marginal goods that have already been created versus that direct connection where I want to invest in this publication. And it is an investment. People overuse the word investment to mean buying things. But in this case, I'm not buying articles. I'm investing in sort of the ongoing production of this content that I think is important and needs to exist. And I know I want to read not just today, but many days into the future. Mm, Such a good point. And it's so easy, both from a consumer and also a supplier perspective, it's so easy to fall into the trap, especially when something has been the way it has been for so long to think you are buying the articles. But that reframing of I'm not buying articles, it's almost like crowdfunding the continued investigation that a specific publication will do. Just as buying a CD, it's easy to fall into the trap of I'm buying a piece of plastic. And the reason that that model was so successful was that they were able to sell pieces of plastic, even though that's not exactly what people are buying. And now it's the shift to convenience and shift to this notion of supporting someone, I hadn't considered that. And right now, what you are basically funding is the continued development of Apple News and the interface that sits over the top and creating this very competitive cutthroat environment to be the thing where people spend the most time. And you'd like to think that there is alignment between where people spend the time and the continued funding of the journalism. But as we started in the conversation, there's a long-term and a short term difference. And sometimes creating that fantastic piece of content requires months of investigative journalism. And in the meantime, the publication that's undertaking that type of work is just like you said, bearing all the risk in its upfront production. And they don't have the benefit of the subscription coming in in the meantime, and then it gets put out and then it rises and falls based on that. In the short run, if it's successful and you can keep a perfect cadence of all these things coming out, that's great. But that's so rarely how news works. To your point, sometimes there's just no news, right? Absolutely. And this is one of those where I wish we had recorded the podcast first, because I think that point around investment versus purchase, this point about reframing what people are buying in terms of publications is so critical. And I think that kind of gets at it, right? These publications are asking readers to invest in them. And the sort of returns that they gain, they're not financial returns. They are this digital content that comes out that, yes, has no cost in a vacuum, but it is a return on an investment that I made. And I'd like to think that people that subscribe to Stratechery, they're investing in me and they're investing that I can do this full time and I can spend my time thinking about these sorts of things. And the output, the returns that they get on their investment is not money. It's the articles that sort of kick out. And that's just so fundamentally different from an aggregator world where basically everything's an auction. Every single thing is an auction. Everything goes up there. People are bidding on it and buying it. And there's just a complete separation 
between that production side and that consumption side. And it's not a healthy place to be if you want to be this sort of direct to consumer business because the incentives get all wrong. And this is what I mean about, yes, maybe Apple will do time spent versus clicks. But the idea that you are incentivized not by driving investment from people, but you're incentivized by driving purchases from people, just the way you think about your business and the decisions you make and the editorial approaches you take will be fundamentally different. And I think for these publications to go with Apple, it's not just dangerous from a sort of cannibalism standpoint where people that would have subscribed will not subscribe to Apple and they'll make less money. Certainly something to be very concerned about, but I'm even more concerned about the corrosive effect this will have on how they think about their business. Yeah. The point around the distinction between investing and purchasing is just one of those super subtle elements where it's so important to understand the difference. And if you don't pay close attention, it's easy just to skate straight on by. I have a personal experience with this actually in the workforce where earlier on in my career, I worked for a boss where I think her belief was unless she did it, it wouldn't be good enough and she wouldn't approve it. And it got to the point where my mindset changed from doing the best work I could to doing the work that I thought she would approve. And it sounds like it should be the same thing, but the way that I went into this was entirely different. And it's just another version of what the subtle distinction in incentives end up driving very different behavior. What's also interesting is when you think about this and then you think about how the New York Times or the Washington Post have been advertising themselves more recently, the Washington Post democracy dies in the darkness. That's the New York Times talking about holding the present Trump administration, like continuing to do the journalism that keeps their feet to the fire. They are very much advertising on this basis of you're making an investment in us to maintain democracy as opposed to much more article base. And it's interesting to see how they're branding in this way that is talking about exactly this distinction. It's much more about making this investment. Yeah, and it's funny because it kind of gets at why the Wall Street Journal has never had to do that sort of framing and maybe why the Wall Street Journal was always so plugged into the idea of having a paywall from the very beginning, because traditionally speaking anyway, it's connected with actually making investments. Like we help you make sort of long-term decisions and be knowledgeable to do those sort of purchases. And maybe just the association there was maybe much more natural, but it's exactly right. If you want to build a sustainable long-term business, a direct-to-consumer business, and your sort of main product is a zero marginal cost product, you have to reframe what you're selling. And that framing is not just a marketing technique. It's not just throwing up a slogan, perhaps a bit overwrought on your on your webpage. It is actually going throughout your entire organization and changing sort of the way that you think about everything. And the New York Times, I thought, articulated this extremely well. There's that 2020 report I've written about a couple of times. It was so perfect where you have to draw a straight line from your business model all the way through your organization and make choices accordingly. You have to make trade-offs. And I'm going to quote what they wrote. We are, in the simplest terms, a subscription-first business. Our focus on subscribers sets us apart in crucial ways from many other media organizations. We are not trying to maximize clicks and sell low-margin advertising against them. We are not trying to win a page views arms race. We believe that the more sound business strategy for the times is to provide journalism so strong that several million people around the world are willing to pay for it. What are they paying for? What is the it? It's a singular term referring to journalism. That's what you're selling. You're not selling journalistic output. 
You're selling journalism. But what Apple is seeking to compensate you for is the output. And that's why I think this is a very dangerous place to be for these publications. I mean, I walked into this conversation with higher hopes given that distinction around time spent, but you've done an excellent job of convincing me. Well, I mean, you may be jet lagged. I'm I'm not going to take too much credit. So it will be very interesting to see what they do. To me, it's pretty straightforward. But I think the warning that you had earlier in this podcast about the lure of looking only at marginal costs is something that's going to loom large because Apple is going to come and they're going to say, look, the people that are going to Apple News, they're not going to go subscribe to you. Like You will get to keep your subscribers. They have everything that you want. We're just offering. It's going to be all additive. You're just going to make more money. And why not do it? Because after all, you can just give us your content at basically zero cost. And in a narrow sort of sense, they may be right. Again, the question of cannibalism is certainly a large question, and I'm sure that every news organization is thinking seriously about that specifically. But to my mind, that's sort of small potatoes relative to this bigger question. What kind of company are you? What are the incentives that are undergirding not just what you do on the business side, but what you do on the editorial side? Because it all has to be aligned. It all has to work together. Like I'm right there with them. Selling text on the internet is not the most alluring business model in the world. If you want to pull it off, all pieces of the business have to be sort of rowing in the same direction. And to me, that's far more of a long-term danger than even sort of the cannibalism question. And it gets to your point, beware the danger of short-term marginal-based decision-making. Yeah. And anytime you add a Pied Piper into the mix, whether it's Facebook, Apple, whatever, it's like they end up wanting to get paid and you need to be willing to pay the price. Yeah. And just in general, Apple is sort of aligned, I think, generally with the point of view of publications and journalists. And, like, you know, and it seems, again, it's a subscription. People are paying for journalism. Isn't that a good thing? But you know, at the end of the day, Apple is operating in Apple's interest. And they are going to do this as a subscription because that's the way their business works. And services revenue is good for them. Again, all your points I readily acknowledge and agree with about the things that make Apple News better than Facebook. But At the end of the day, this is Facebook all over again, just with a different way of money entering the system. And what journalist on earth would want to relive that experience? Yeah, I mean, it's almost more difficult because whereas for Facebook, it was always clear to me, but it has become abundantly clear the relative importance and the degree of substitutability of journalism on that platform. And you can just substitute it with pictures of your kids or someone else's kids or whatever it might be, and people will still happily keep going there. With this, it's harder because like you said, Apple's priorities are more aligned. Yes, Apple's still number one, but I think that the belief believability of the arguments around the importance of journalism and the importance of privacy and all these other things that right. fit. we're going to have human editors like we're investing in this like we're connected with you we care about the same things you do and that can all be true and they right. can still no exactly the priorities seem so much closer and then it's like oh maybe these guys are going to be the ones that save us and it's like actually no when you step back you need to have that relationship the entity with the relationship with the consumer needs to have you as priority number one, or you're always going to be priority less than one. And that's never going to end well for you. You said something that I think is really profound. You said, you know, there has been for 20 years, like who's going to save us? You know, you go back to like the iPad and, and the daily and the iPad's going to save journalism. The only people that are going to say publishers are the publishers themselves. There has to be a taking control of your own destiny that has to be undergirding the mindset and taking control of your destiny. You mentioned this before earlier, like this is by definition, giving up control because control means owning that relationship, owning that connection, aligning your business around 
attracting that customer. And you know what? Is this worse for customers from a very sort of narrow perspective? Is it worse to have to maintain an account with the New York Times? And if you also want the Washington Post and also the Wall Street Journal, and boy, wouldn't it be great if it was all in one place? Absolutely. But that's why you have to double down on your investment in quality. You have to double down in making what you do so attractive that people just want to invest in that. And making money in a world where you can't depend on a monopoly, on a geographic monopoly, that means making choices. It means making trade-offs. And an absolute trade-off in building this model is making things less convenient for the customer. Asking the customer to pull out a credit card is incredibly inconvenient. It's about as inconvenient as it gets. But you want that. You want it to be a two-way relationship. Just giving people stuff and they have to do nothing for it, it's a losing game in the long run because these big guys are going to come in and just sit in the middle and collect whatever gains there are to be had. What that customer is doing, when that customer is pulling out that credit card and they're buying that subscription, it's creating a two-way relationship. It's not this dysfunctional, I'm just going to throw lots of stuff your way and hope that you like me. It's actually, no, we're going to have a give and take here. And that's the foundation of any sort of successful relationship. Yeah. Didn't know we were going to get a dating advice, did you? No. We are wide ranging here on Next Funny. Yeah, absolutely. Anyhow, thank you for powering through and on the travel. I think this was good. You know, there's absolutely an aspect here, like maybe because it is a space that I'm in, but I care about this and I care about journalism. I want it to exist. And again, there is definitely debate to be had about how much the sort of potential and monetizability and this direct consumer business model, does it only work for large national publications like these? Can it scale down? What about local news? All these are absolute real questions that we've debated in the past. And I'm sure we will debate again, but let's not lose sight of the fact that there is at least in some cases, absolutely clearly a model that does work. And let's not give up on that model in the pursuit of you layering on a little bit more. Keep the long term in mind. And and I think if you do that, the choice for these publishers is pretty straightforward. Yeah, I agree. All right. We have almost closed this podcast several times, but let us close it for real. I hope you have a good trip back. I think I should talk to you next week. Sounds like a plan. Oh, I will talk to you soon. Have a good one, mate. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.